Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Former punk Val Garland is a makeup artist who has been working at the forefront of the fashion industry for the past 30 years. She has worked with many of the most eminent designers, photographers and models, notably on fashion shows for Alexander McQueen and Lady Gaga's Born This Way album cover artwork. She is global makeup director at L'Oreal Paris and a contributing beauty editor at British Vogue. In this episode of The Collector's House, she told me about the five things that most inspire her, her most memorable creative collaborations, her thoughts on makeup, aging, and cosmetic surgery, and the time Kate Moss staged an intervention on her hair. So, Val Garland, welcome to the Collector's House podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're very excited that you, you've come all the way to Five Carlos Place to talk to us a bit about your work and your new book, which you've which has just come out. I think it's been published it by came, Lawrence yeah. King. It actually came out today, so it's very excited. Um, but, it, you know, it was three years in the making, and um, so a lot of blood, sweat and tears has gone into it. And um, <clears throat> I'm glad I've done it. And, um, I mean, Nick Knight said to me about five years ago, you should do a book. And I was like, yeah, 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 no. Um, that sounds like a lot of work. And then I was having tea one day with a friend of mine, Camilla Camilla Morton, and she said, oh, why don't we do a book? And because she said it so lightheartedly, I thought, yeah, okay, this will be easy. But, um, yeah, lots of research. Because there was more than 30 years' worth of material, presumably, yes. to go through. Yes, there was. Um I am apparently very old, <coughs> excuse me, with a bit of a frog in the throat. And um, yeah, so I looked through um, my archive, which is basically tear sheets in boxes, and um, thought about all the moments that I liked. And um, I wanted it to be a book that would um, appeal to an up-and-coming makeup artist and give them a sort of an idea that, you know, um, you've just got to believe, if you want it, you've just got to believe in yourself and just get on and do the hard work. And, um, yeah. And um, and I didn't want to... I wanted it to have humour, be a bit funny, and I wanted it... I just didn't want to take myself too seriously, you know, so... Um, and it's also very beautiful. Well, what lots of work with all those great photographers you've worked with over the years. Well, I think I've been very... Uh, fortunate to work with some incredible photographers, image makers. So, um, thanks, guys. <laughs> you made my makeup look good. You. <laughs> you know. So yeah. Um, you know, I think I met Nick Knight very early on, and um, I met him at a time when I was working with this young stylist called Katie England, and she was also. We were doing funny little jobs for like the Evening Standard. And sometimes we'd work for the Observer magazine. And um, we were desperate, you know, to be taken seriously. 
And um, so we'd put our heart and soul into these double page spreads and um, this is sort of late 90s time I'm guessing or uh, this is sort of like mid 90s yeah and then I think you know Katie England I'd sort of gotten to know her quite well and um, you know I think she just started working at this new magazine Dazed and Confused and so that was sort of like a, a portal for us all to sort of like try out our experiments, which we did. And um, it was through that, <coughs> excuse me, that Katie sort of said to me, oh, I've met this designer down on the Portobello Road and um, he'd like me to do his show. Will you come along and meet him with me? And I was like, yeah, 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 okay. And so we go along to Hoxton Square and sort of like, you know, knock on this door and the door opens and there's a guy sat there in the corner in a vest, sort of like sewing a frock. And he's like, hi, my name's Lee, you know. And I was like, oh, hi, Lee. And, uh, and he's like, oh, so do you want to see my clothes? And uh, yeah, it was really cool. And, you know, because I think like... And Lee was? <coughs> Alexander yeah. McQueen. And um, I think, you know, people sort of say like, oh, you know, you um, study... And at some point in your future, you become like this sort of like fully fledged creative and then you get famous. But it's actually a journey that starts much earlier where you sort of like gather these people around you. And, you know, they're the people that are going to be your tribe that you grow up with, you know. Um, so Alexander McQueen was part of that tribe, as was Katie England, as you've just said. Yeah, and, and you went Knight. on to work and Nick Knight and you went on to work on... Alexander McQueen's shows, yes. which have become mythic in fashion yeah. history. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was an incredible time. I mean, Lee was such a visionary and, you know, he was, or we were doing things for the first time. And, um, you know, he had this idea for skin that he wanted it to look um, super perfect, um, almost like elastic plastic and um, it was trying to find ways to give him this very sort of mannequin kind of skin that wasn't sort of um, matte and like foundation but it looked um, futuristic like AI so we would be busy um, mixing things in pots because the idea of highlighted skin didn't really exist people weren't using highlighters um so you know i would be mixing you know bits of uh, sort of uh, glitters and light refracting um products in with moisturizer to try and get this aerodynamic what later became known as you know um gym skin so you know <coughs> through working with lee um you know i came up with the idea that you know, the the sort of uh, beauty work that we were doing then and continued forward was called Botox Beauty because it was all about the idea that um, you look stretched, you know, because in those, in those shows, you know, I was literally stretching, you know, 15, 16-year-old girls' faces to make them sort of, like, look more alien-like and we were um, blanking out or bleaching their eyebrows so they just became these otherworldly beings 
Can you tell me a bit about what it was like working with Lee on the, what the creative process was like? I'm sure people would be interested to know how you got from the initial ideas to the, to the end result in the show. Well, I think um, we would meet. We would meet with Lee and Katie about a month before the show. It would be me and Guido. Guido Paolo and myself would meet with Lee and Katie England um, in Amwell Street, which was the McQueen offices. And uh, we'd usually meet about a month before the show. And then Lee would give us an overview of what he was thinking for the show that season. And then... Um, we would, Guido and I would go away and um, we'd probably go to Guido's house in Highbury, Islington, and um, we'd just sort of like try out some ideas, lots of different ideas. We'd have models come in and we'd Polaroid everything. And then um, we'd probably do that kind of like about four times. And then... Um, We'd either get Katie to come over, Katie England to come over and have a look at the Polaroids. And then she'd go, yeah, I think Lee would want to see that one. And did he give you the theme at the beginning? Yes, you'd get the theme. You'd get the theme, you know. Um, yeah, whatever that was, yeah. you know. Yeah. And um, then, yeah, and then finally you'd have to take your idea to Lee, do it in front of Lee and hope to God that he liked it. You know. And did he usually like it, or did he push you? Oh, he always pushed you. He always pushed you further. And then, you know, um, you might get to a point where he loves it, and, yep, yeah, everything's great, everything's great. And then um, it's the night before the show, and you get a phone call at about, um, I don't know, 11.30 midnight from... Um, Sam Gainsbury, who was the show producer, and she would sort of say, Lee is doing a lighting test for the hair and makeup um, at three in the morning at the venue. So that means you've got to get there at two, get the model ready um, so that Lee can see it in the lights at three. And there was this one particular time we were doing um, a Givenchy show and everything was all about this blue. It was all about this blue. And... Um, you know, we'd rehearsed it with our, or I'd rehearsed it with my team in Paris, and we'd spent kind of, I had like my six core artists, and we would have um, spent kind of like a week perfecting so this. So this is when he was working at Givenchy? This was yeah. when Lee was working at Givenchy, yes. And um, anyway, so the night before the show, went to the venue, it's all about this blue egg eye, and he sees it under the lights, and he's like, no, I don't like it. I just don't like it. And you're like, okay, and he's like, change it you know, do something else. And, um, you know, so quickly you've got to think of something. But it's not only that, but then you've got to go, the next morning you might be starting at 7am in the morning and it's an eight-hour call time um, for the models and you before the show starts. And then you, you have to tell your makeup artist to forget everything that they've trained for over the past week because you're now you're doing this. You know, so yeah, interesting process. But um, I loved the um, I loved the sheer panic of it. You know, um, yeah, because yeah, you said in the past how you hate to be get bored. You'd like yeah. to constantly be doing things that are exciting. And out of all the images that you worked on for him, what's the one that sticks out most in your memory as being the most impactful? What was the most exciting one to work on? One of my favourite moments um, with Lee was. There were so many favourite moments, but I really loved the show 13. 
Because in the 13 show, we had Shalom Harlow being pouted with paint. You know, um, I don't think Lee had rehearsed whether that was going to work or not. So it was happening for the first time during the show. So that was a bit scary. We also had Amy Mullins wearing special prosthetic legs that Lee had made for her out of wood. And, you know, it was touch and go, could she walk on them? You know, lots of things happened on that show. Um, <clears throat> um, Did you work on Shalom's makeup before it? Yes. Yeah. Did she know what was going to happen to her when she went she out kind on the of, runway? She kind of, she, yeah, but not really, not really. But that was the, um, the spirit of it, you know, living in the very moment. You know, there was the other, one of the other shows that I loved was the Voss show. And that was like so controversial because here came all the press and they were sat there and basically they're looking at a box, but it's a mirror. So they're all looking at themselves and everybody can see everybody else looking at themselves. And you don't want to be the one that's fixing your hair. You know, you don't want to be looking like the vain one, you know. And I remember during that show, there was a moment where Karen Elson was wearing this like Sean Lean jewelry. And um, she tripped as she came back off the catwalk and it was so close that she was gonna fall and we all just grabbed her. Otherwise, God knows what would have happened with that jewellery, where it would have ended up. Um, but, and whilst the audience was looking at the um, mirrored glass box, inside the mirrored glass box were um, two of my um, trusted makeup artists on their hands and knees, um, sticking sort of like moths with honey all over this model. And, you know, I, I'll always remember it. They were remember real live it. moths. Yeah, they were live moths, yeah, because they flew away. Mm. But I'll always remember it when that the four walls smashed, you know. It was just sensational. But it was always sensational with Lee. Yeah. You know. So this podcast, when we talk about five things that are inspiring or your favourite things. So I was wondering, what was the first thing that you were going to talk about? Oh, the five things yeah. that I brought. Oh, okay. Okay. Just taking you out the Lee McQueen vortex. Okay, all right. Well, I'm going to get them out of the bag. And um, first and foremost is this, is this book, which is um, a book that I worked on with Nick Knight. Um, this shoot was actually called Sweet. And um, it's just a fabulous book of different people's work. Um, and they're all one-offs. So they're all kind of like bits of art in their own right. And when did you make this? Well, I wonder if there's a date on there. I'm just going to have a look. I think it might be 2001. And it was uh, produced in an edition of 100 with 20 artist proofs. So I don't know what number I am. But um, I just thought it was a beautiful piece to have, you know. And there's a little, um, there's an artwork in there by um, this artist, Julie Verhoeven, and she's done it on fax paper. And I don't, don't ever want to look at it because it'll be gone, you know, because it will just evaporate. So that's that. That's one of my treasured possessions. And then there's an artist called Marco Ria. And um, he takes... Um, he takes sort of like uh, 
magazine covers or editorials and then he sort of like graffitis over them. And this is a picture that Solva Sunsbo did of myself and then Marco Rea just went whoosh. And I just loved it. And he sent it to me and I mean, obviously it looks very freaky, but I quite like that. Does that hang in your house? That hangs in my house, that hangs in my bedroom. My family can't quite understand it. They're like, that's really ugly. But, you know, I quite like that. And then, um, what have I got in here? Okay, well. I love this, coming out of the bag. Yeah, okay. There's my favourite perfume, which I wear all the time, Portrait of a Lady, Obsessed. And, By... Oh, uh, Frederick Marle. Uh, Portrait of a Lady, Dominic Ropian. Additions to Perfume by Frederick Marle. So when did you discover this perfume okay. and why do you like it so okay. much? Um, I, um, I just think it smells, it's the, it's the smell that people notice the most on me. Um, like I've always loved perfume. I was a big Comme des Garçons girl. Um, then I moved on to Byredo and I used to wear 1996 by Inez and Vanude. And it was the one day when I was wearing 1996 and I was in Dover Street Market walking around and then there was this woman, she was in there with her friend and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and I just sort of followed this woman round the shop Hello, and the said, you know, I'm so sorry, but what perfume are you wearing? And she told me and I was like, great. And so, and I didn't know if it, because perfume smelled differently on people. I didn't know if it would work on me, but ever since I've worn it, people always say, oh, you know, it smells great on you, so I'll keep wearing it. So there's that. And then um, we have, oh, okay, jewellery. I've got three pieces of jewellery. This is a bracelet that was given to me by Mary Catranzu. And, I mean, it's a proper knuckle duster. But I just really thought it was so... It's like an Egyptian... Yeah, it's just so Egyptian unusual. Goddess. And, Please. you know, I love jewellery. And um, yeah, so I've always liked that. And then I've got two bits here. I do tend to like a safety pin. And this is a safety pin that was given to me by John Galliano. hundred so million. It's a very large, an enormous safety pin. An enormous safety pin. And I think this is a Dior, Christian Dior safety pin. And I've sort of like had it for years. And I guess you... You know, you can't take the punk out of the old boiler, yeah. you know. So you had a bit of a punk moment when you were a teenager. Yeah, punk, new romantic, you name it. I probably wore it. Yeah, I can see the Dior logo. Yeah. yeah. So that's that. And then there's another pin, but I remember I was working with Vivian and um, Andreas. And I was like, <laughs> I have so got to have that, um, you know. There's so one... do you want to describe what this one looks like? What the... Okay, so this is a safety pin with an Another erect one. penis attached to it. And, so where's uh, it from? Who's... It's from Vivian Westwood uh, and Andreas. Um, and I don't know, I guess one... Why are you of... supposed to... Where do you wear that? It's a brooch. Here. It's a brooch, yeah. yeah. You know. And um, I just liked it. And, you know, there's a sort of lip that I do, or my team, when we're backstage at the shows... Um, if I want a certain type of lip, I'll sort of say, oh, you know, can we have a CSL, please? You know, let's do some CSLs. And everybody knows what that means on my team. <laughs> and that means a cock-sucking lip. I love it. 
but you might want to edit that out. And then, um, okay, I am obsessed with dolls. And I love Victorian dolls, and I know they're very creepy, but I really believe this, this demented-looking one is me. She, has she got knickers on? Yeah. Oh, she has, good. And um, because I always used to wear my hair in plaits for years until one day Kate Moss came into the room and just ripped them out of my hair and said, you are too old for plaits. So... Um, when was this? How old were you when she did that? I don't know. I must... I, not too long ago. I think I must have been in wow. my 40s. And, um, yeah, so I like her. And I like this one too. And they were both born bought it separate on separate occasions but I just love all the detail they're probably haunted but I just like them they're just Where did so you buy them? um I think I bought that one in Wales and I bought this one um I think I got this one in deal and the man in the shop when I was paying for it he didn't even want to look at it he had it face down because <laughs> <laughs> he thought it looked too macabre but um yeah, so that's things that are... That's you know. a lovely collection. I hope we can put them in the cabinet upstairs. Yeah, how big's the cabinet? It's pretty big. Okay. We'd fit those things in. Great. Mm. And um, and and so they'll stay there for the night? Um, yes, or longer. We'll just have to... I'll right. need to speak to the um, visual merchandiser who looks after the okay. space. Yeah. Anyway, going back to you... Yes. I wanted to go back, back to when you were a child and a teenager, and um, you grew up in Bristol. Yes. And I read a quote from you, which I read somewhere when I was researching you, which I really loved, and you said, to my 15-year-old mind's eye, everyone who wore makeup looked exceedingly glamorous. I wanted to be in their club. I wanted to be glamorized, outrageous. I wanted to be noticed. And I thought that was a good jumping off point at which to speak about your approach to makeup. And I was wondering why you were so drawn to this glamour and being outrageous. I think it was more, I was more drawn to the outrageous than I was to the glamour. My sister was very glamour, oh she still is, very glamorous. I've never seen my sister without makeup since she was about eight or nine. And um, so she was very glamorous and that was... Was she older? One year older, and um, my sister looks kind of like Sophia Loren, and she's very sort of breathy and talks like that, you know. She's very like that. And um, I just thought, well, I, 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 just, I just want to be strange. I, I, don't, I don't want to just be glamorous. I want, I want to be noticed, but I want to be noticed for being different. And so whereas my sister was, um, you know, always, um, you know, bronzing and tanning and long lashes I was painting sort of like you know green all across my face you know and um I don't know I think because for me Bristol in the 70s and 80s we've always had a great music scene but it was really dull it was really dull and and I looked around um in the late 70s, you know, and everybody had the same sort of like haircut, you know, and you sort of like left school, you know, went out with the guy that had the apprenticeship, 
you know, before long you got married or you got pregnant. And I was like, oh God, I don't want that. You know, I want to do something. I want to travel. And, um, but I did marry the guy, the first boyfriend. Married him very shortly after I met him. And you were still a teenager when you married? Oh yeah, I was like, you know, 17, 18, yeah. And got married and like all my my parents were kind of like, oh my God, you know, are you pregnant? No. And, um, but I married him because he asked me to live with him and at that point you just couldn't do that. It wasn't acceptable if you were Irish Catholic, which I was. And so I'm like, okay, let's get married. And he was a drummer in a band. And um, shortly after we got married, and we were very sort of Sid and Nancy, you know, and he sort of said, um, oh, I'm bored. And I sort of said, yeah, I'm bored too. And I thought he was going to say, let's go to Paris. And he said, uh, let's go to Australia. And I said, yeah, all right. And off we went. And that was it, you know. And um, so the 80s, that was kind of like 1979. So the 80s was very much my growing up, coming out period of being, you can do whatever you want, your parents aren't around, you know, you want to cut your hair, shave your hair, colour it any colour you want. And, and you spent time working as a hairdresser? Yes. Um, I was a, um, I started out as a hairdresser purely because in Bristol, um, I thought it would be a stepping stone before my real career started. I wanted to be a journalist, perhaps. Or I knew I wanted to travel, um, but I also had the idea there was this brand new job and it was called Computer Programmer. And this was kind of like 1974, 75. And you'd see these little ads in the back of magazines like the Jackie or, or what have you. And it'd be like, you know, Cosmopolitan, you know, do you want a new career? Try computers. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that sounds really great. I want to do that. And um, so um, I got a job in a salon um, just to see me through. And uh, I was there for a very short space of time. And I thought, I don't like it. I'm really bored. You know, this is really boring. This is not for me. And it's certainly not enough money. You know, I earned, earned £4.50 a week. Um, £2.50 I'd have to give my mum. That left me £2 to spend on shoes. You gave your mum money oh, for living at home? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think that was a good thing, you know, it sort of taught you how to manage money. And um, and I had to buy a pair of shoes every week, you know, and, you know, and you had to go out, you had to go out clubbing. And um, so all of that. And anyway, so um, I gave up hairdressing and went, um, found an ad and it was for the British, Air, no, not British Aircraft, um, British Gas. They were looking for computer operators and the training was one day. And I'm like, well, that can't be bad, can it? One day training, amazing. And so um, I do the training, get the job. It's my first day on the job. And it's almost like being a typist. Everybody's got a computer in front of them and they're like about this big. They're like these big, big boxes. And you're just there, just, you know, punching numbers in and punching numbers in because you, in those days, they taught you how to type. And um, that's how ancient I am. And um, I looked around and no one's talking. No one is talking, and you get 15 minutes break in the morning, 15 minutes break in the afternoon. That's the only time you can go to the toilet, and an hour for lunch. And I said to, during one of the 15 minute breaks, I said to one of the girls, um, How do you get paid? And um, of course, I was used to getting tips, so I'd get much more money. Um, 
And um, she sort of said, oh, we get paid monthly. And I, was like, and I said, well, of course, there's no bonuses or anything. And she's like, no. And I'm like, okay, monthly. Oh, my God, how am I going to buy my shoes? And um, on the first day of my job, I actually handed my notice in. So I lasted a month. And that was it. That was the end of computers for me. And then I was back to hairdressing. And that's when I met my husband. And, um, you know... Uh, you moved he, to Australia. We oh. moved to Australia, yeah. And But Australia was great was in the 80s. Perth? Four years in Perth, ten years in Sydney. And Australia was great because it was pioneering, especially if you were English. If you were English, you were almost halfway there. I mean, I think within 14 months of being there, I had my own salon. You know, you could just... You could just blag it and go for it, you know. And um, but you must have had quite a lot of. Um, like you, you're being. I think you're being quite modest by saying you could just blag it because you still must have had quite a lot of get up and go and a lot of balls in a way just to be able to get that far at such a young age. Well, I think you Where do you... have balls at a young age. You know, you have no fear. Where did you get that from, though? Were your parents? Did they instill uh, that in you? Well, I think. Um, I don't know. I think I always had a built... I mean, my parents, um, they instilled in me... I was a bit of a loner, and I had a massive imagination. And, you know, I would create stories out of nothing. And um, my parents, when I, was a, when I was a kid, when I was about three or four, they told me I was special. And uh, they told me I was special because when I was a kid, I was actually quite... Well, I was really ugly. You know, I had this big lump on the front of my head and uh, a bit of a cross in my eye. And, um, but the lump was like really big. And um, people would look in my mum's pram and they'd look in and they'd go like, oh, oh, you know, <laughs> the baby. Because, you know, there was no disguising this lump. And I didn't have any hair until I was what three was years lump? old. It's the way I grew into my mother's hip bone. So, I mean, you can still see it now. You have to feel it. Come on, feel it. You have to feel it. See, I am the original oh, unicorn. But, but Alexander McQueen loved that. I think so. I hope so. Anyway, um, anyway so um, I was like three or four, and they're like, you know, you've got a lump on your head. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I do. And they're like, well, that's because you're very special. You're very special. Like, you're more special than anybody else. So just remember that. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm special. And so from about the age of four, I would get my dad's razor or the kitchen scissors and I'd cut my hair off so that everybody at school could see this bump of knowledge. And they'd be like, egghead, egghead. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. I'm special. I'm special. I know I'm special. My parents have told me I'm special. So maybe it was that. I don't know. And I think by the time I got to sort of like eight or nine, I got fed up of being hit on the forehead. You know, I thought, <laughs> best we grow a fringe. You know, but um, yeah. Oh. But kids are cruel. Kids are cruel. But you own it, anyway. Yeah. Like you said, unicorn. Um, and then when you came back from Australia, um, and I'm moving forward now to yeah. back, being back in London, I'm thinking about the 90s. Mm-hmm. Which was obviously a very creative time in London, and there were a lot. There was, in, on, especially in, there was a lot of stuff happening in fashion, and I was really interested to hear about your take on what it was like then, and if you had any fun stories to share of parting with Kate Moss, that kind of thing, or just what the vibe was like and how you fitted in to all of that. I think um, 
the 90s, um, like I arrived back in London in 1994 and um, it was a different moment in fashion. Um, You know, I got an agent really quickly. Um, I guess there weren't so many hair, makeup, styling people around. And um, just through um, generally working, I quickly you know, gathered this group of people around me, like Katie England, um, Eugene, Lee Queen. Um, you know, there was Rankin, there was Phil Pointer, John Akerst, you know, started working with McQueen, so then I'm now working with Nick Knight, you know, Nick Knight's um, assistant leaves to go and do his own thing, that's Solver, he's a great beauty photographer. So, you know, and we were... We were doing it because we loved it. Um, Where was the physical hub of all this? Where were you hanging out mostly? um, The Bricklayer's Arms in Hoxton. It was was all around, um, yeah, it was all around Shoreditch. That wasn't in Hoxton, Shoreditch. Um, Kingsland Road, you know, um, you could get cheap loft space there. Um, Alistair Mackey was there, Katie England was there. Um, Lee McQueen had a loft opposite. Um... So, I mean, we just, you know, we just all helped each other out. You know, if there was a shoot to be done, yeah, you know, you'd be there, you'd do it. I mean, I I think um, in all the time that I was working with Lee McQueen, I don't even know if I, I think I hardly ever got paid. You know, it wasn't about the money. It was about, are we doing something that's interesting, you know? And, of course, there was lots of pop promos. So I would have met Katie, Sam Gainsbury, um, who's the producer for the McQueen show. I would have met her first on a pop promo for, like, Kathy Dennis or something like that. Um, and, um, yes, I guess if I could if I could tell you any stories, then I wasn't actually there. <laughs> um, we did, we had a lot of fun. And there were lots of parties, and um, it was a very memorable moment in time. Were you aware that that was that you were? That it was a special time that would you'd look back on. Um, not really, because you were just living it and doing it. Um, yeah, I guess I didn't really feel like, um, oh my god maybe we've landed somewhere until Lee, um, you know, got to work at Givenchy and then all of a sudden it was like, this is actually quite serious, you know, this is a bit more grown up. But, um, yeah, it was a great time. I wouldn't change it for, for the world. And then I also wanted to talk to you about um, the difference in terms of your craft, your, your the, doing makeup. I'm really interested in the difference between makeup that's sort of theatrical like the kind of stuff you were doing with Lee McQueen and you're also really uh, famous for doing the makeup for the Lady Gaga Born This Way cover and I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about Lady Gaga in a minute but the difference between that kind of makeup and then the kind of makeup that is what I call I don't really know the right term for it but like practical makeup that women use yeah. like on an everyday basis to make themselves look more attractive mm-hmm. um, and I was wondering where you feel like you fall in that and what your thoughts are, and if you prefer one to the other, because I know you definitely feel like you're, you've talked about a lot about how you're creative and artist, and you know, you have artistic leanings, um, but you're obviously, you know, you're, you're a um, director for L'Oreal Paris, um, and so on, so you very much fall into the commercial and the artistic camps. Well, I can't see why you can't 
be in every camp. And I think if you look at the work in in the book, you'll see it goes from nothing to a lot. You know, because sometimes it's not about the makeup at all. It's about beautiful, real skin, you know, and maybe it's just like a, a cat liner. Um, other times you're creating a character. And I think if I was doing the same thing day in, day out, if I was doing crazy stuff all the time, I'd be really bored at that, you know. Um, and if I was just doing glamorous makeup all the time, that would be really boring. So I think it's really, it's, it's important for me to be able to go to Cannes and work on the likes of, you know, Helen Mirren, Julianne Moore, um, Jane Fonda, as well as come back and do a Vivian Westwood show or a Gareth Pugh show. And then maybe over there at some point you've done Lady Gaga. You know, um, I quite like, yeah, I like the juxtaposition of so many different types of makeup. And do you feel like makeup, what, what, how, are you, how do you feel about um, women who use makeup to mask their features or, um, you know, they might be insecure about something so they'll hide they might be insecure about having a skinny lip or something and they'll use really overinflated makeup or what's the difference between that and the kind of makeup where it's more about wearing obvious makeup where you as opposed to makeup where you can't really tell they're wearing it does that make sense it does make sense i think um fundamentally uh we have to look at makeup as a tool it's a tool to empower you it is every woman's weapon to use how she chooses. So um, it's like that old saying like, um, oh, you know, hold on a minute, I've just got to put my face on. You know, let me get my face on, let me get my face on. Um, because when I've got my face on, then I can, I can face the world. And um, whatever you do, as long as it gives you confidence and it makes you feel better, whether that's, you know, Giselle and it's a few little freckles across your face, or whether that's a full-blown, you know, Kardashian kind of makeup. They all have their place in the world because it's about making you feel confident. It's about making you feel good about yourself, you know. Um, so I think there, there's every single woman can benefit from some makeup. I was with um, somebody the other day and we were talking about makeup and this particular person, who is the same age as me, sort of, I think, said, no, women, as women get older, um, they should use less and less makeup. Uh, no, your face can't take it. And I disagreed with her, because I think as you get older, your features get softer, so it's the right time to bring back your brow. You know, maybe you have to look at different ways to apply your makeup, than what you did 20 years ago, but everybody can benefit from some makeup. Mm. How do you feel about cosmetic surgery? Up to you, whatever you want, you know. Um, you know, I've seen some people, men and women, and they look incredible. Um, as long as you don't get dysmorphic, you know, look, as long as you don't think that I look better with this trout pout, you know, um, there has to be a kind of like a guideline. I think a little and often is really very good. Um, 
I think some people look better just as they are. And what the hell is wrong with a few lines? You know, men can get away with it. Why can't we too? You know, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to look like that sad woman, that sad older woman who it's obvious that her lips are overblown. You know, it's obvious that she's been threaded. I don't know. I, you know, I would like to think that I'm comfortable in my skin, you know, and I'm using makeup and or enhancements to give me more confidence, not make me look younger. I don't want to look younger, I just want to look better. You know, yeah, that's mm. how I feel about it. And I feel like I can't do a podcast with you and not ask you about Lady Gaga, um, even though I know you've spoken a lot about it in the past, but you did do the, you worked with her on the Born This Way artwork for her, for the album cover. Um, so tell me about what, 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 she, what, what she like. She's having another moment at the moment with um, yes, a star, a star is born. Is born. Um, I first um, I first came across Lady Gaga. Um, oh, I don't know how many years ago. Anyway, Nick Knight was going to be was going to shoot her, and um, I mean I knew that there. It was quite funny. Uh, yeah, I knew that there. Um, I was going to go and work with this sort of like pop star. I didn't realize how big a pop star she was. And I went into Park Royal Studios, and there she was. And she's a tiny little thing, very tiny, very sweet. And uh, she was really nice. Um, I think she was in her early 20s. She knew exactly what she wanted and how she wanted to come across. And at that moment in time, like, you know, she was wearing, like, a bit of a stronger brow. Um, she was definitely wearing two, if not three, sets of eyelashes, lots of mascara, uh, and the rest. And so I did her makeup the way she, she liked it, and that was fabulous. And then I got booked to work with her again, and um, we were in Milan, and it was me, Sam McKnight, um, Nicola Formicetti was her stylist then, and um, we were getting her ready, I think it was for 60 minutes or something. And um, Nicola sort of said, oh, we need to come up with a, a new look. We've got this Born This Way album coming out, and we want a new look for her, what do you think? I'm busily doing the makeup, and I thought, okay, what could we do that's different? I said, let's get rid of her eyebrows. Let's bleach her eyebrows, like no eyebrows. And she was like, what? And I said, let's take off the eyelashes, you know, and we we'll just do one big thick sort of like punky black line, um, and keep the skin very real. Oh, and then maybe we might do some prosthetics, and both Nicola and. Uh, Gaga were like prosthetics what are they and I literally got little bits of paper and cut them into little aeroplanes and just sort of like you know stuck them here on her face and I said well on her cheekbones we could, yeah we could change the shape of your cheekbones so that they came out more oh right and she sort of like took a picture and that was that and I wasn't really doing the album cover until about three months later and um I arrive on set and then there's this um, lovely, fabulous prosthetics guy from Pinewood, um, Miss Garland. Here are the prosthetics that you designed and I'm going to apply them for you. So that was quite major, but I'd actually made a rod for my own back because every time she had a public appearance, she'd have to have these blinking prosthetics <laughs> put on and they took like about 40 minutes to get them on. Um, but yeah, she was great. I mean, she still is great. She was amazing, amazing artist to work with. 
and such a great singer yeah and then finally what are you working on next because i mean this book is out now is there more to come absolutely um i'm very excited um i've just finished filming a project that will be um going to air um in spring of next year and um it's something for the tv British TV on British TV, mm. British TV. So um, watch this space. Mm. Very exciting. Well, thank you so much, Val Garland, for talking to us. It's been a real pleasure to have you. My pleasure too. Woo! That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag 5CarlosPlace. Thanks for listening.